before I read our scripture lesson for this morning, we are starting a new sermon series. If you looked at the front of your bulletin, it's called Burning Questions. Um, so these are questions I think that all of us have asked at various times and places in our lives. And if you looked into the bulletin further, you'd see we're going to start off really light and easy with our first question. Um, <laughs> why is there suffering and evil in the world? So uh, we're going to kind of just wait, go in slowly in the shallow end, right? <laughs> um, so the psalm I'm about to read for us, Psalm 88, um, it's kind of, it's the darkest and gloomiest one in the Bible, so just prepare yourselves for what you're about to hear, um, and we'll talk about it further from there. So my goal is not to make you really sad here at the outset, uh, we'll talk about it here in just a second. So yeah, I know, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't be the sunshine for you today, it's not, <laughs> I wish I could, but I can't. All right, Psalm 88, listen now for God's word to you. O Lord God of my salvation, when at night I cry out in your presence, let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like those who have no help, like the forsaken among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the reg regions of dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a thing of horror to them. I am shut in so that, they, that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call on you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the shades rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your saving help in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O oh Lord, cry out to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast me off? Why do you hide your face from me? Wretched and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am desperate. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dread assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. From all sides, they close in on me. You have caused friend and neighbor to shun me. My companions are in darkness. Word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. There are readings every once in a while I come across. So when I say the word of God for you, the people of God, I want to put a little question mark at the end of it. And I'm sure in your response, thanks be to God, you want to put a little question mark after that as well. Um, psalm 88 is certainly one of those psalms. It is the darkest, gloomiest psalm in the entire Bible. I remember at my uh, previous congregation, I was teaching a group of middle schoolers a, a lesson about the psalms, all the various psalms that are in there. And one of the, the, the curriculum that we were using mentioned Psalm 88 being the, the gloomiest and darkest psalm in the Bible. And I, and I said that to them, and they immediately began flipping through their Bibles fr as frantically as I'd ever seen them flip trying to find Psalm 88, and when they found it, they read it dramatically with a lot of emotion behind it. Um, they loved Psalm 88. Um, I, quite frankly, I was just excited that they were enthusiastic about trying to find something in the Bible. Um, they loved that Psalm so much, they decided to give me a little gift. They took a little note card, and they wrote some of the final verses on there, like, you have caused friend and neighbor to shut me, my companions are darkness. Uh, they had wrote those on a little note card for me as a gift, and I kept that card uh, on my office. You know some people put Bible verses on their walls as artwork? I kept that as artwork for my office. Uh, 
a reminder of the darkest and gloomiest psalm in the Bible. Um, One that helps us, I think, to begin to start to answer that question, like I said, the question of why is there suffering, evil, and injustice in the world? Um, It is a a question I think that we have all asked. It's a question that um, we have been asking as human beings, I think, since we we gained a sense of consciousness and ability to assess the world that we lived in, a, a question of why is there suffering and evil and injustice in the world. And I think we, we ask that question in a lot of ways because um, it sort of stands as a contradictory thing to the things that we've been taught to believe about God, that we've been taught that God is all-powerful, all-loving, and all-just. And so how can the realities of evil and suffering and pain and heartache, how can they exist in a world when there's a, an all-loving, all-just, all-powerful God? I mean, couldn't God, if God wanted to, simply get rid of all of those things? That we are aware of the realities, right? Some of those things are, are caused by, by, by human uh, decisions. We can understand like, things like wars or uh, like that cause anxiety. Those are human decisions. But, but what about things like children who suffer from illnesses or diseases or the things that we experience in our own personal lives, the pain of loss and grief? What do we, we do about those things? Um, that we uh, experience those realities of pain and injustice and suffering. Now, of course, we are not the first people, the first generation of people to be asking this question. It's not like this is a question that's asked by only 21st century people. This is a a question that people have been asking for a long time. That the the authors of the Bible talk a lot about, ask this question a lot, why there's suffering and injustice and, and pain in the world. And what we find in the Bible a lot is what's known as laments, laments, this crying out to God, this calling out to God about the things that we're experiencing. And the scholar Soon, Ch- Soon Chan Ra says this about what laments are. He says that laments are prayers that arise out of our need. But a lament is not simply the presentation of a list of complaints, nor merely the expression of sadness over difficult circumstances. Lament in the Bible is a liturgical response to the reality of suffering and engages God in the context of pain and trouble. The hope of lament is that God would respond to human suffering that is wholeheartedly communicated through lament. Lament is this crying out, this engaging God in the realities of suffering and pain, heartache and justice. It is a liturgical response, Ra says, that is, is an act of worship. It is a, a faithful response. And we should not underestimate just how present laments are in the Bible. 40% of the Psalms are Psalms of laments. There's an entire book in the Bible aptly called Lamentations. I wonder what that's about. Um, <laughs> lamentations, the, the, the prayers of the prophet Jeremiah as he laments, as he mourns and grieves the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus, in some of his final words to us from the cross, offers a prayer of lament to God. Uh, The opening words of Psalm 22, those words that are very familiar to us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Psalm 88 certainly fits within this category of uh, lament psalms. That it is written by uh, Haman the Ezraite. Uh, a sort of obscure character in the Bible. We don't know a whole lot about him. Actually, I think all we know about him is that he wrote this psalm and that he was a musician in the temple. So for your next Bible Trivial Pursuit night, <laughs> you know the answer now to who Haman the Ezraite was. 
But Haman is, is going through something that's really difficult, something that seems to be really big. And whatever it is, it's been going on for a long time. We, we, we listen to him as he prays in this raw and unfiltered way. We heard that prayer. We heard, I cry out to you. My, my soul is full of troubles. I am counted among those who go down to the pit, like those who have no help, like the slain. And then this lament increases in intensity that he sort of implicates God in what he's going through. He says, you, God, have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a thing of horror to them. Why do you cast me off? Uh, I suffer your tears. I'm desperate. Your dread assaults destroy me. You have caused friend and neighbor to shun me. Haman prays in this raw and unfiltered way. He holds nothing back. He engages God in his suffering. This is a, a, a pretty normal lament psalm, but what makes his unique, what makes Haman's unique, is the fact that normally lament psalms at the very end, the very last section of almost every other lament psalm, is what's called a reorientation to God, a, re, a turn in trust towards God. That as they list the things that they're going through, they then turn and say, well, I trust you, God, to do something about it. But that is lacking in Haman's prayer. He sort of just leaves it kind of hanging there for us, waiting kind of for God to respond without this reorientation and trust. When I was uh, living in Missouri, I remember one day I had just gotten back from Columbia, which is the closest city to us, closest big city to us. And those are all relative terms because close means 90 miles away, uh, 90 minutes. And big city is also relative because it's like 120,000 people. Um, That was the closest city to us. And um, so every time we went down there, it was always a, a long day of travel, three hours total in the car, along with whatever you're doing down in Columbia. And um, I had just gotten back home, and I had turned onto my street, and I saw a, a minivan parked across the street from my house, one that I didn't recognize. And as I started to turn into my driveway, I saw a woman walking down the street with a folder in her hand, and I thought, oh, great, a, a political canvasser. Um, because it was campaign season, canvassers were coming by trying to get us to support all of their candidates or whatever. So, so, um, so I pulled into the garage and I checked the rearview mirror to see where she was, and she was standing at the end of my driveway, uh, still on the street, but at the end of my driveway. And I was like, I'm not in the mood to talk to anybody. Uh, I've had a long day. I had been to Columbia three or four days that week uh, for meetings with the Presbytery. I was exhausted, worn out, wanted some introvert time. So I decided to take destiny into my own hands. Um, <laughs> The garage was attached to my house, so I pushed the garage door opener from inside the car, shut the garage door, and went inside. And I was pretty pleased with myself, <laughs> pretty smug with the way that I had avoided this conversation. And I, I thought that I had communicated pretty clearly that I did not want to talk. Well, not 10 minutes later, the doorbell rang. And uh, I'm from the Midwest, and I've, I feel like a certain obligation when the doorbell rings that I have to answer. I knew it was her. And so I reluctantly went and answered the door. I had to crack the door open because my dog was trying to get out too. And I said, hello. She goes, she goes hi, how are you doing? We're, uh, I'm Joanne. We're, we're walking around the neighborhood today asking some people some questions if you have a minute. And I wanted to be polite. And I said, oh, okay, sure. And she, she looks back out at the street and she says, when you look out at the world around you and you see all of the evil and the injustice and the suffering around you, do you think God is to blame? It, 
it took me a second to reorient myself to the fact that this was not a political canvasser, but some door-to-door evangelist, and I'm not sure which is worse. Um, and I said to her, I said, well, I said, not necessarily, but I also don't want to let God off the hook. I said, I'm sorry, are you with the church? She goes, yeah, we're Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> I said, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor in town I'm trying to end this conversation. I, I'm a pastor in town at the First Presbyterian Church, and I think it took her by surprise because I look like this, and I don't look like a pastor. <laughs> um, and, she, uh, and she said, oh, well, then you probably know this Bible verse. And she opens her Bible to some verse from, from the book of James about how God doesn't tempt and doesn't cause evil. And, uh, and, she's, and that, like, that settled the debate. And so I was growing more and more annoyed with this conversation. Uh, first of all, sh- I'm trying to have this enormously huge theological conversation through a crack in the door because the dog's trying to get out. And then second, she quotes a Bible verse to me out of context, which, by the way, is my favorite thing in the entire world. That's sarcasm, by the way. Um, <laughs> You all have had that experience, I'm sure, where someone just quotes the Bible verse at you as if it, it ends all debate. Let me just say at the outset, there is no one perspective in the Bible on why there is suffering and evil and injustice. There are a variety of experiences from across the thousands of years that the Bible was written down in. Some of those perspectives might actually, we might actually find rather harmful and destructive, and some of those perspectives we might actually find helpful, but there is no one perspective. And second, this conversation really bothered me, really irked me, because uh, for me, my mind immediately went to those who do ask this question, not from a, a place of it being an existential or philosophical question, but one where they have experienced the realities of pain and heartache and suffering in their own lives. This is a question that is asked from a very real place in their lives. You know, my my mind immediately goes to to my own mother, who I've watched suffer from chronic pain for the last 20-plus years. And I've watched her as she's prayed. We as a family have prayed. I've I've seen people try to do some sort of healing and anointing over her, and still that, that, that pain remains. That wondering of why am I the one suffering continues on for her. I think about one of the patients I visited when I was a student chaplain who had received a terminal cancer diagnosis a couple of months before that was in the hospital, and he told me that when he had received that diagnosis, he went out to the Princeton University football field and just yelled and screamed at God. Um, I think about the, the characters within the Bible itself. I think about Job, poor, poor Job, right? Who had everything you could ever want or imagine, and it's all taken away from him. And, and then his friends, quote unquote, come to visit him. And if you've got friends like Job's friends, you don't need enemies. Um, the prevailing wisdom and understanding at that time was that bad things happen because you did something wrong. And so they say to Job, well, Job, you must have done something wrong. And he insists, uh, well, no, I didn't do anything wrong. Well, think harder, Job. You must have done something. Job is insistent, no, I didn't do anything wrong. Or the, the people like that, that Jesus meets in his, in his own ministry, like in the Gospel of John, a, a man who is described as being born blind, who who sat on the roadside day after day begging for what he needed. And the disciples walk by, and they say loud enough for him to hear, who sinned that caused this man to be born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? And Jesus says, well, nobody sinned. That's not why he's blind. Or I think about the 
people like the re like refugees and immigrants who are looking for a, a place to belong, and they often get turned into political issues. But behind the sort of political issues that get battered between the two sides of the political spectrum are people, real people with families and needs and human dignity. That there are all of these people who have experienced and faced these realities of suffering. And, and I think what, what people who experience those realities need most is not Bible verses shallowly, shallowly quoted at them. They don't need platitude. They don't need proper theological discussion about who God is. What they need is space to engage God with the suffering that they are experiencing. They need space to voice and name their lament. They need space like Haman the Ezraite to name those requests, to be totally open and honest. I think what these prayers of lament remind us is that we can be totally open and honest with God, that we don't have to, to censor ourselves with God, but we can name with a certain rawness the things that we are facing. That God is not offended by prayers like that. In fact, I think prayers like Haman's, prayers of lament, are so holy and so sacred that they were canonized into Scripture for us so that we might learn how to pray in the same sort of way. That it seems to me that when the people of God have faced suffering and pain and heartache, that they have turned to God in prayers of lament. They have named their suffering. And in the words of Walter Brueggemann, this seemed to always draw them closer to God and not push them further away. But of course, none of this answers the question of why there's suffering and evil and injustice in the world. And I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I don't have an answer for that. Um, I've taken you all this way and I don't have an answer. If I did have an answer... I'd have a lot more money in my bank account from all the book royalties I'd be making and the speaking fees and all that. Uh, it's a question, I think, that does not have an answer to it. We're starting off this burning question series really strong, right? Um, it's a question I don't think has an answer to it, but it's an important question for us to ask because I think it helps us to ask an, another, maybe more important question of where is God in the midst of suffering? Where is God in the midst of pain and the midst of heartache? And what prayers like Haman's tell us is that God is engaged with us in those prayers, that God is near to us in those moments. The reason why I picked Psalm 88, this dark, gloomy psalm, without this reorientation of trust towards God, is because I, I think it's important for us to note that even when we are unable to, to take that reorientation, to make that turn, because of what we're facing, God still engages with us that God is still close by and near to us in those moments. Uh, there's a story, a fictional story, about the Russian or the Polish composer Ignacy Jan Paderewski, a fictional story about how he was getting ready to play at this large concert hall. It was a formal uh, affair. They were all wearing tuxedos. And, and at this concert, there was a, a young mother with her nine-year-old son. She had desperately been wanting to teach her son piano, but he seemed uninterested. So she brought him to see the great Paderewski to hopefully, hopefully pique his interest. And so they all found their seats in the auditorium. And, and uh, while the mother was talking to her friends, the, the nine-year-old boy started to squirm in his seat and was uncomfortable, bored. And so he decided to wander around his new surroundings. 
until he came to a door that said no admittance, which he decided didn't apply to him and went on through. And finally, the curtain went up, and the mother looked at the stage, and she saw a horrifying sight. There was her nine-year-old boy sitting at the piano bench. And then it got worse from there. He began to play chopsticks on the piano. And the crowd, the audience, started to boo and jeer him. They didn't want to hear some nine-year-old boy playing chopsticks poorly. They wanted to hear the great Pederoski. And in that moment, that's when Pederoski came striding out to where the boy was sitting, he put his arms around him and started to play a counter melody with him. And the whole time he whispered in his ear, don't quit, I'm right here. Keep on playing, son, I'm right next to you. Don't give up. Where's God in the midst of suffering and evil and injustice? I think God is right at the piano bench with us, playing alongside of us, helping us to keep on, uh, keep on going. Uh, Madeline LaEngle she has a quote that says that God does not stop bad things from happening. That's never been the promise. The promise is always, I'm with you to the very end. Where is God in the midst of suffering? Right alongside of us, engaging with us, like that closest friend and that closest companion, helping us along the way. We may not have an answer to that question of why there's suffering and evil. It is, the, I think, the most burning of questions that we have as human beings. But we can be assured that when we face suffering, evil, injustice, pain, and heartache, God is right there beside us, helping us along the way. Thanks be to God. Amen.